The holiday season is approaching, and for Americans, that means Thanksgiving is coming up. And that means, for most people, turkey. Thus, today's topic. No, not the large domestic bird that's delicious when slow-roasted, but the country. We'll take a look under the hood of turkey, or turkia, as President Erdogan decreed in December 2021, and see just what's going on there these days. Turkey is a place with a complex history and a diverse population which can lead to a sense of uncertainty and instability. Conspiracy theories that offer explanations for complex events and interactions seem to take hold easily there, especially lately. The country's had numerous coups, political scandals, and terrorist attacks over the years, which has eroded public trust in government institutions and contributed to a general sense of suspicion and mistrust. Turkey has a highly polarized political environment today, with deep divisions between secularists and Islamists, leftists and rightists, and nationalists and minorities. And as we all know, conspiracy theories have been co-opted into political warfare, being used to whip up the emotions of particular target demographics, which, you know, sounds awfully familiar. And the media there is wholly unreliable. On the Reporters Without Borders World Press Freedom Index for 2023, Turkey ranked 165th out of 180 countries, just under Russia, down 16 places from their 2022 ranking of 149th. 90% of all media in the country is now under government control, with most of the rest in the hands of business interests that promote wildly different narratives in an effort to capture various ideological markets. There has been an increase in lawsuits against news outlets, arrests of journalists, and even violence targeting journalists. This can make it difficult for people to distinguish between reliable information and propaganda and contributes to the spread of false information and conspiracy theories. All told, Turkey seems to be particularly susceptible to the spread of conspiracy narratives, which is a darn shame since the country is absolutely fascinating with a long and rich history stretching back more than 40,000 years, fantastic food, a varied landscape, and an incredibly hospitable people. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Oost Akul! Totally Turkey! I remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. I'd also appreciate it if you would go on to IMDb and find our listing and give us a rating there. I apologize in advance to any Turkish people or Turkish speakers out there for my well-intentioned and yet clumsy attempts to pronounce Turkish place names, people's names, and even a few Turkish words. Sorry, but I did try. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse.
Arthur Bre Gulen, A Walk in the Park. That's a quite odd 2019 song by Istanbul-based improvisational experimental pop collective Gugur, which contains the line, Kot ve sahada havara dans idin iki ayakuba, which means jeans and two shoes dancing in the air on the right. The main conspiracy theory in the modern Turkish nationalist meta-narrative is the mastermind theory, or ust akul in Turkish. This is employed to explain why the country, once a mighty force in the world, seems so diminished in status and success today. This is that an all-powerful agency of a sinister sort is actively taking steps to keep Turkey down. It's similar to conspiracies found throughout the Arab Muslim world. Islam was once the bastion of enlightenment, knowledge, and progress, but no more. And if it weren't for the oil, these countries would be extremely poor and maybe sort of backwards, if we want to use that term. So what happened, people ask. Explanations include, A, people have moved so far from the correct path of Islam that God no longer favors them, or B, some group is secretly working to keep them down, and usually it's Zionists, by which proponents of this idea mean Jewish people. The term Ustakul comes from the current leader of Turkey, let's just go ahead and call him a dictator, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who most people in the West call Erdogan, who first used the term in 2014, right around the time he first became president. This evil mastermind group targeting Turkey is probably the United States, though the concept is fluid enough to include anyone and everyone Erdogan chooses to target. State-controlled media have suggested that the Islamic State, IS, formerly known as ISIS, is also part of the conspiracy. The Kurdistan Workers' Party and followers of the Gulen Harketi, or the Gulen Movement, who have been labeled as terrorists by Turkey, Pakistan, Turkish, Cyprus, and the Gulf states, are also in on it, coordinating their efforts to bring Turkey to its knees and maybe even chop the country up into smaller chunks. The CIA is also sometimes involved, and the UK, and the, quote, interest rate lobby, whatever that is, and of course, quote, Zionists. It's not just Turkey that's being targeted. Many things that happen throughout the Muslim world are the result of these behind-the-scenes manipulations, things like wars in Syria and Iraq. But it's mainly happening in Turkey. These mastermind types have enormous resources and also zero scruples when it comes to picking on poor Turkey. When a cluster of earthquakes occurred in the Avicii-Gurpinar earthquake zone in the Marmara region in 2017, the mayor of Ankara, the capital of the country, a man who's a big Erdogan stooge, said that what came to be known as the Avicii or Chanakale swarm was not natural at all, despite the area being rife with earthquakes all the time, but was a test of some sort of an earthquake weapon being conducted by this evil cabal. He then said that soon they would use this weapon against Istanbul, destroying the city and wiping out the country's economy. For this, he presented zero proof. But he didn't have to, because the mastermind narrative has taken such hold in the media that things like this are generally presented as a fact all on its own. Why did this happen? Oh, it's the masterminds. Done. Research accomplished. Later that year, the often shrill conservative Islamic newspaper Yeni Akit, which means New Agreement, which pushes a lot of stuff that's anti-LGBTQ, anti-Freemason, anti-Communist, Kurdish, Greek, Yazidi, feminist, atheist, secularist, and even anti-Semitic. Yes, they once had a picture of Hitler in the middle of their daily word puzzle, the answer for which was a Turkish phrase, which means, we long for you. 
Anyway, a new agreement published a riveting expose once on how agents of the mastermind conspiracy were communicating with one another in broad daylight using ripped jeans. You see, certain holes and tears of certain sizes and in certain locations mean different things to the initiated, a sort of Morse code. For example, a small rip in the knee area is the letter A. A large rip in the knee area is the letter B. Rips in the lower part of the leg or near the ankle represent symbols or numbers. A rip in the upper part of the leg is the letter T, which stands for target. And two rips side by side represent the letter M, which stands for meeting. This is known as the Kot Pantalon theory. Kot Pantalon means blue jeans in Turkish. And yes, it sounds farcical. But really, this is an attempt by the more traditional elements to get people to stop wearing Western fashion styles and conform to more traditional garb. If the police services think that ripped jeans are worn by secret agents and spies working on Turkey's downfall, then normal people, fearing for their safety from those police services, will stop wearing them. In fact, in the summer of 2017, the head of the Gulen movement, preacher, writer, dissident, and pan-ethnicist Fethullah Gulen was stripped of his citizenship. He was a Turkish-U.S. dual citizen, and an image was shown of him wearing a t-shirt that had the word hero printed on it. Now, this was a fairly common t-shirt on sale all over the country, but immediately after Gulen was targeted as public enemy number one, the company that made those shirts shut down production. But the security services are not well known for nuance, and not long afterwards, a man wearing a t-shirt that had the Batman logo on it and the word hero was arrested and interrogated for three hours by the anti-terrorism police, simply because he had the word hero on his shirt. Another idea is that American money contains secret messages. The secret police maintain that they know for a fact that pro-Gulen people use American $1 bills to signal to each other that they're members of the group. As a result, most Turkish people today will not even touch a $1 bill if it's offered to them. Not because they necessarily believe the conspiracy theory, but because the police sure seem to think so. And so a sort of feedback loop is created. The media, encouraged by, if not outright controlled by, the government, spreads various proofs of the mastermind theory, which makes the police look for those proofs, which makes the populace stop doing those things, which then tells the state control apparatus that the theory must be correct. Aya Benzer. Similar, Similar to, the moon. to the moon. That's a 1990 song by Istanbul native Mustafa Sandal about what people can accomplish by working together. A quickish look at the history of the Republic of Turkey, not the last 40,000 years, but the last 100 or so, might help us get some insight into the mindset there and how it has developed. The Ottoman Empire, which lasted from the year 1299 until the end of World War I, collapsed after they were on the wrong side of that war, allowing the Republic of Turkey to be established in 1923, and the Caliphate entirely abolished the following year. The father of modern Turkey is Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, a name he took on that means father of the Turks. He was born Ali Riza Ol Mustafa. He was a former field marshal and writer, founder of the set of political ideals that came to be known as Kemalism. 
As the first president of a post-Ottoman republic, he made sweeping changes to the country, secularizing it. Separation of religion and state was included in the new constitution, and even going so far as to ban the veil for women and the fez, the traditional hat, for men. His movement pushed for people to wear European-style clothing, gave full political rights to women, created a legal system based on that of Switzerland, changed the alphabet from an Arabic script to one using Latin letters, and much, much more. Atatürk died in November 1938 on the eve of World War II. His successor, Ismet Inunu, kept Turkey neutral during that conflict, though he did sign a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany in 1941, four days before they invaded the Soviet Union. By 1944, it was clear the Axis powers were going to lose, so Turkey negated the non-aggression treaty. In February 1945, Turkey joined the Allies, declaring war on Germany and Imperial Japan. After the war was over, Turkey was one of the original 51 members of the newly formed United Nations. In 1946, multi-party elections were held for the party that had been in power remained in power. In fact, he remained president until 1950. So far, so stable, though there were rumors that Atatürk, who was only 57 when he died, had maybe been poisoned by the Freemasons. But nothing really came of that. Then in 1950, the center-right Democratic Party won the election, and Adnan Menderes took the role of prime minister. This was the first time since the establishment of the Republic back in 23 that a party that wasn't Ataturk's CHP, the Republican People's Party, had control of the reins, and it's the beginning of what's now known as the multi-party period. Now, for the first five years of his 10-year rule, Menderes oversaw an average 9% growth of the economy, in large part thanks to the Marshall Plan, got Turkey into NATO, and modernized fields like agriculture, transportation, energy, healthcare, education, and even banking. He also reduced some of the religious restrictions. But the year of his re-election, 1954, the economy suddenly took a nosedive. Turkey suddenly found itself with a minus 11% GDP per capita, and the country's debt went way up. Tensions between the Greek minority and the Turkish majority have been rising a bit as the two nations sparred over who should get the island of Cyprus, which throughout its many, many, many centuries of history had been Greek, then Roman, then Byzantine, then a separate Crusader kingdom, then Ottoman, then leased to the British after the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, then a crown colony of Britain, and now there were calls for independence. But should it be mainly a Greek country, since Greeks made up 77% of the populace, or should it be a Turkish one? Or should the country be divided into two parts? Violence in Turkey against the Greek minority there broke out in early September when, on the day the first conference to discuss Cyprus fell apart, a bomb went off in the Greek city of Thessaloniki, slightly damaging the Turkish consulate and the house where Ataturk himself had been born. Why, those dirty Greeks! At least that was the news story that came out the next day. So mobs of armed men were trucked into various parts of Istanbul, and these men began attacking Greek businesses, churches, and even defacing cemeteries. And of course, people. Martial law was declared because, wow, the violence is so intense. But the attacks went on for more than nine hours before the police intervened. In what is sometimes today called Turkish Kristallnacht, over $500 million worth of damage was done, more than 1,000 people were injured, 200 to 400 Greek women and boys were raped, and over 30 people were killed. Armenians and Jews were also attacked. 
Menderes then started limiting civil liberties, censoring the press, suppressing rival political parties, taking over public institutions like universities, and promoting what would be called, quote, ethno-religious unmixing, which was to separate the Greeks and other non-Muslims from the rest of the populace, often shunting them into shanty towns, which would then be periodically attacked by armed mobs. This continued for years. In 1960, in response to rumors that the CHP, Ataturk's old party, was planning some sort of rebellion, Menderes then created the Committee of Inquest. Members were all MPs from his party, and they had sweeping powers, including the power to arrest and imprison people without charge. They banned all political activities and clamped down on the press, only allowing things to be published with government approval. People demonstrated against these moves, and the police were sent to violently stop the protests. In one incident, the rector of Istanbul University was badly beaten by police, and a student was shot and killed. Enough was enough, thought the Turkish military. So, on May 27, 1960, General Cemal Gürsel and 37 young officers stepped in and removed Menderes and his lackey Jalal Bayar, who'd been serving as president, and all the party leaders. Investigations ensued, and it turned out that the bomb in Thessaloniki had been planted by a Turk, and the attacks against Greeks in reprisal had been planned by Menderes and the government. The whole thing had been staged. The junta who'd staged the military coup conducted trials, charging the government had violated the Constitution. They also found out that massive embezzlement had been going on as well. Menderes and two cabinet ministers were executed, and President Bayar was sent to prison for life. 235 generals and over 3,000 non-commissioned officers were also forced into retirement and hundreds of judges and political officials who'd supported the actions of the Menderes government were likewise encouraged to make themselves scarce. Now, here's maybe the most extraordinary thing about this coup. Throughout most of 1961, the military held a public referendum for a new constitution and then organized a general election. In October, they handed back power to civilian control. Seviorum semiorum. I like it, I don't like it. That is a 2009 song by Ankara born singer songwriter Neil Kare Ibramjil about how separation can cause confusion. The events of that coup is just the first of four times the military stepped in, removed a bad government, and then gave power back. Stuff got out of control again in the following 10 years, with power bouncing back and forth between the Justice Party, sort of a descendant of the previous Democratic Party, Ismet Anonu's Republican People's Party, and the left-wing politician Bulant Ejevit. Constant instability led to the military initiating another coup in 1971, though this one was accomplished with just a memo, stating their intent to use force if necessary, which, in light of what had happened in 1960, made the in-power government simply resign. This has come to be known as the coup by memorandum. Then there was a Greek coup in Cyprus in 1974, which saw the democratically elected president there deposed, replacing him with a dictator who was all for total reunification with Greece. So, the Turks promptly invaded the island, occupying whole swaths of the northeast. Political violence escalated inside Turkey itself, usually between the far-left and ultra-nationalists, with some Islamist groups also getting in their boot. They all hated one another, but they were united in their hatred of the current government. 
It's estimated there were 5,300 assassinations and political killings throughout the mid and late 1970s. In 1978 alone, there were more than 3,300 fascist attacks, that's nine per day, resulting in 3,100 people wounded and 831 people killed. Martial law kept getting declared, and then things would calm down, and then things would escalate again, and martial law would be declared once more. The political scene was similarly unstable. Heck, in the 1977 election, there was no winner at all. And of course, the economy was a disaster, with inflation in the three-digit range, and their foreign trade debt was off the charts. So once again, the military stepped in. On September 12, 1980, General Kenan Evren declared a coup d'etat. The National Security Council, which General Evren was head of, declared martial law, initiated curfews, banned all political parties and unions, replaced all governors and mayors with military personnel, suspended the Constitution, and dissolved Parliament and all branches of government. And then they started making mass arrests. In just over two years, more than 120,000 people would be imprisoned. And then this would grow to eventually adding up to somewhere between 250,000 and 650,000. Exact numbers are hard to come by. The economy recovered quickly with stability, but GDP was still lower than most countries in the region. Military tribunals tried 230,000 people, stripping 14,000 of their citizenship and executing 50 of them. An additional 1.6 million people were blacklisted and untold thousands were tortured or disappeared. 800 new laws were passed to create more order in society along the lines of how the military organizes things. <laughs> Big surprise. A new constitution was drawn up and passed in 1982. Democratization mechanisms were put in place and elections were held. General Evren then became the new president, but he was voted in. Of course, some of the losers of that election spread rumors that the CIA had been involved in the coup, but this turned out to be not true. And yet, at the time, many people still kind of believed it. After the dissolution of both the Habsburg and Ottoman empires, most ethnic groups got some ancestral land and self-governance out of the deal. The largest group of people to get screwed over was the Kurds. This ethnically Iranian group of people, currently numbering between 30 and 40 million, were pretty much ignored by the 1923 Treaty of Lausanne, which set the modern borders of Turkey. Rather than getting their own country, they found themselves minorities in parts of southeastern Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Iraq. In 1984, fed-up militant Kurds formed groups like the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, who began organizing paramilitary militias and, well, attacking things. Turkish leaders were unsympathetic, even going so far as to deny that there was any such thing as a Kurd. They said they were Mountain Turks instead. In 1987, southeastern Anatolia went into a state of emergency that lasted into 2002. This was to herald a nationwide political instability once again all through the 1990s. After a failed assassination attempt in 1988, former Prime Minister and leader of the Libertarian Motherland Party, Turgut Özal, became president in November 1989, on the same day that the Berlin Wall fell in Europe, though that's just a coincidence. He started thinking that his country's denial of the Armenian genocide, more on that later, was maybe damaging their reputation abroad, so he started entering into talks with the Armenians. 
He also opened lines of communication with Kurdish groups trying to reach some sort of accommodation. Then, on April 17, 1993, just three and a half years into his term, he died of a heart attack, only aged 66. This, of course, led immediately to several conspiracy theories. He was killed by Mossad. He was killed by the CIA. He was killed using an advanced directed energy weapon or maybe a microwave gun. He died as a result of a black magic ritual curse. Of course, all these take attention away from the more believable theory that maybe he was killed by those in Turkey who didn't want to admit anything about Armenia and the Kurds, but honestly, he probably just died of a heart attack. In the meantime, in 1997, engineer Ejmetin Erbakan became PM at the head of a swell of Islamic parties, and he started pushing for more hardcore religious ideas to be codified into law. The military saw this as incompatible with the Constitution and issued another memorandum telling him to resign or else. He did and was promptly banned from politics entirely. This has been labeled by some Turkish historians as the postmodern coup. The Islamist Welfare Party also got themselves banned, so they changed their name to the Virtue Party and got big gains by combining their efforts with ultra-right nationalist groups. Weirdly, they implemented some human rights reforms, started fixing the economy, and started focusing the country very much on the European Union. The economy once again started tanking in 2002, and new elections saw Kurds get into the parliament, which opened up a whole can of worms and helped stymie their EU membership bid. The Conservative Justice and Development Party took the most power. They started moving towards the center to draw in more voters and won again in 2007, despite the military once again sending a memo, this time electronically, saying that they didn't like that party's candidate's stance on religion and society, insisting that secularism would always be primary in Turkey. That candidate, Abdullah Gül, was quite outspoken in his support of Islamicizing the entire country, and his wife was seen in public wearing a headscarf. Don, Don Sonra, After, a 2007 song by Denise Leborn singer-songwriter Sela and singer Kanan Dolu, who represented Turkey at the 2007 Eurovision contest in Helsinki. It's a song about how to deal with being betrayed. It hit number one on the Turkish charts. In 2013, plans were released to tear up Taksim Gezi Park, a small green space in Istanbul, and put a shopping center there instead. Protesters took to the streets of the city and also in Ankara and Izmir. These grew and grew as more people with more causes to draw attention to joined in. It's thought that more than 5,000 protests occurred over several months involving 3.5 million people, or about 4% of the entire country. The police, needless to say, cracked down hard. In the end, 8,000 people were injured and 22 were killed. Many think that these events directly led to the 2014 election victory of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who had been mayor of Istanbul before this in the first direct election in the country's history, as opposed to voting for parties who then choose the actual people in charge. 
At once started spinning the mastermind narrative and basically swaggering around, taking control of media sources and highlighting attacks and bombings in the country by ISIS. He clearly blamed ISIS for the 2015 suicide bombings in the Central Railway Station in Ankara, which were the deadliest such attacks in Turkish history, killing 109 people and injuring another 500. Edouan then went on a controlling spree, increasing censorship and arrests, bringing back torture as an interrogation method, if indeed it had ever gone away, and pushing a decidedly Islamic agenda. On July 15, 2016, the military once again tried to step in and overthrow his government, but this time they failed. Already more than a little paranoid, Edouan now went into overdrive, declaring a national state of emergency, suspending a lot of civil liberties, and purging anyone he thought disloyal, arresting journalists, civil servants, judges, police officers, governors, and even people in the military. These people went into the Turkish prison system, often with no formal charges brought, and sometimes never came out again. He issued a referendum in 2017 declaring the country was now a presidential republic, which is sort of like the U.S. system, sort of. He added 18 amendments to the Constitution and gave the president, his office, the lion's share of power in the country. Well, the EU wasn't too keen on what they saw, decrying the clampdowns on freedoms, so Edouan called European critics fascists and Nazi remnants. In 2018, Edouan won the presidency again, though it wasn't too hard since most opponents found themselves dealt with through intimidation and violence. In May of 2023, Edouan again won the presidency, even though he'd already won twice, which put him out according to the rules about term limits. But he argued that since 2018 was his first term under the new presidential republic system, he was actually able to run for this other term. We'll see what he says in 2027 when the next election is due to take place. Rezim Deki Tears in the Picture. An immensely popular Turkish song from 1979 by Anatolian rock pioneer Cem Karaja, whose father was Azerbaijani and mother was Armenian. Besides the Kurds agitating for independence, the Turks have long been plagued about the issue of Armenia. Early in World War I, Imperial Russia was in the fight against the Germans and the Ottomans, and some in Turkish circles started thinking that maybe the Armenian minority that lived in the east of Anatolia were not to be trusted since they had a long history with the Russians, and so one would assume sympathies. When it came out that there was an entire contingent fighting on the Russian side made up of Armenian volunteers, well, that was the last straw. Scholars and other intellectuals of Armenian ethnicity started getting rounded up in April 1915, and then at the end of May, the Tehsir law was passed. This allowed for resettlement of Armenians, thought to number between 800,000 and 1.5 million. This took the form of death marches through the deserts of Syria and other inhospitable zones, then labor camps, and finally devolved into wholesale slaughter of all able-bodied men, and then women and children with starvation, beatings, and rape being the preferred methods of execution. More than a million Armenians died in a year, and maybe as many as one and a half. Between 100,000 and 200,000 women and children were forced to convert to Islam, Armenians were Eastern Orthodox Christians, and changed their names, basically pretending to be Turks if they didn't want to end up like their fellow Armenians. 
and so ended more than 2,000 years of Armenian history in eastern Anatolia. In fact, Armenians had been in the area 1,500 years before the Seljuk Turkmens, the forerunners of the modern Turks, ever got there. 34 countries have recognized this as a genocide, and yet some Turks come up with various reasons why it was justified. And by the way, those numbers are way inflated, they claim. While other people say, nah, it just never happened at all. That's just anti-Turkish propaganda and lies. The fact that the quite successful Christian middle class of Armenians suddenly left, leaving room for Turks to move in, is just, well, one of those things. Erdogan, on a visit to Sudan in 2006, actually said there had been no genocide in Darfur because he thinks it's impossible for any Muslims to ever participate in a genocide. That seemed to be code for, since Turks are Muslims, they couldn't possibly have killed all those Armenians. You just have to find your explanations elsewhere. Some of the other Turkish refutations of the Armenian genocide include... It's all made up by the Armenians who have their eyes on taking over parts of eastern Turkey. I mean, genocide. It's such a preposterous claim. It's self-evidently false. No, they weren't killed. They were simply relocated to protect them from the Russian army, which had invaded Turkey during the war. The fact that they all then decided to stay in Armenia afterwards is on them, not the Turks. The Armenian population did decline, but because of disease and famine, not systematic destruction. Actually, the Armenians, inflamed by false conspiracies of the so-called Hamidian massacres, they were the ones who committed acts of violence against the Turks, not the other way around. In fact, the Memorial and Museum of Martyred Turks Massacred by Armenians, yes, that's the name of it, in the eastern Anatolian city of Udirsh is a tower 43.5 meters tall, that's 143 feet, and a museum that falsely claims all sorts of things about Armenians being the ones who tried to commit genocide against the Turks. This is the tallest monument in the entire country and probably the largest facility entirely devoted to a conspiracy theory in the world. And on and on it goes. Those distinctive Armenian churches built between the 4th and 8th centuries CE, centuries before any Turks were on the ground there, well, those are much more recent than that and actually part of an interesting Turkish architectural style completely unique to the eastern part of the country that, for some reason, totally got abandoned right around the time these supposed massacres took place. People who still speak some form of Armenian, which is not related to Turkish at all, but is a direct descendant of Indo-European, eh, that is Turkish. It's just a really weird dialect. This is very similar to the way they handle the whole Kurdish situation. Nope, those aren't Kurds speaking Kurdish, which is an Iranian language. Why, those are mountain Turks who just speak a funny Turkish. There are no people known as Kurds, and there never have been. So then what's with all those people who claim that they are Kurds, including the ones who become terrorists, IRA style? Well, those are just troublemakers enthralled to the mastermind conspiracy that is trying to destroy Turkey. It's all pretty neatly done, with any evidence simply dismissed as lies, propaganda, or active disinformation to further secretive, nefarious plots. Rakuya Sukataman, I Can't Add Water to Raki, a 2023 song by Dutch-Turkish psychedelic synth-pop group Altungun, which means Golden Day. Their second album, Gece, Night, 
was nominated for the Best World Music Album Grammy in 2019. The Jews, also known as the Sabbatians, were a group of Jews who converted to Islam in the 17th century following the messianic movement of the Jewish preacher Sabbatai Zevi, who gained quite a following by claiming to be the Messiah who had finally come. Better late than never, right? He took his case to Jewish religious leaders who said, nah, you're not the Messiah. So, in a fit of pique, he converted to Islam, as did many of his followers. Or so goes one story. Another is that Ottoman Sultan Mehmed IV just threatened to kill them all, so Zevi told his people to pretend to convert to Islam while still keeping most of their Jewish practices, albeit secretly. These new converts were Muslims, yes, but they were also Jews. And since that sort of dual citizenship thing wouldn't really fly with leaders of either religion, they kept pretty much to themselves, cobbling together a compound Semitic religious movement or cult, depending on who you talk to. This is called religious syncretism, blending elements of Jewish, Islamic, and mystical traditions, leaning heavily into the ideas of followers of the Kabbalah. They often use the Judeo-Spanish Romance language Ladino when conducting religious services. While the Donme movement centered in Thessaloniki, many Donma Jews managed to get pretty high positions in the government of the Ottoman Empire as well as the academic world and also rose to prominence in the merchant class. But they were secretive, which made some people start ascribing various plots to them. Plus, they were Jews, or at the very least crypto-Jews, and Jews were always suspect to many Ottoman Muslims. Over the centuries, these secret Jews would get blamed for all kinds of things, and conspiracy theories could kind of run rampant, since the Dunmas' secretive nature meant they would never be able to contradict these outlandish claims. And of course, they got attached to the minds of some with other secretive groups like the Freemasons. Even in the 20th century, some whispered that the Donme were behind the Young Turk Revolution, which overthrew Sultan Abdul Hamid II and ended the Ottoman Empire. So if you're a hardline Islamicist, the move towards a secular state is actually an attempt to lead the nation away from the true religion and to separate church and state, which is one reason why Turkey is no longer the powerhouse it once was, because God is displeased by this. Some even go so far as to say that Ataturk himself was a donme. And yet Mehmed Javid Bey, a leader of the Izmir plot, which was an assassination plan against Ataturk in June 1926, was himself a donme. But, you know, <laughs> contradictions are commonplace in the conspiracy. Some of the donme still exist today, though the community is tiny, with the remnant mainly living in the Istanbul district of Teşvikir on the European side, although their main cemetery is in Üsküdar over on the Asian side. Today, the Donme Jews are a small and largely forgotten community, and their true beliefs and practices remain a mystery to outsiders. However, their legacy lives on in the cultural and intellectual history of the Ottoman Empire, and their story continues to fascinate scholars and enthusiasts alike. Of course, with things like denial of the Armenian genocide floating around, Holocaust denial is also big in Turkish conspiracy circles. There are plenty of people, some of them legitimate scholars, who claim that the protocols of the elders of Zion are totally real and proof of the Jewish plan to take over the world. 
and some of the anti-Jewish rhetoric gets pretty wild. Back in 2011, the militant Lebanese Shia Islamist group Hezbollah claimed that Israel was training eagles to attack their soldiers, which then prompted the Egyptians to one-up them the next year by saying that they had found Israeli-trained spy sharks. And in 2015, they said Israel had also now trained dolphins. Jordan claimed that Israel had infected rats with bubonic plague and sent them over the border near Sinai, and a Palestinian newspaper said that cows were being retrained as spies. Not wanting to get left behind in the Israel animal conspiracy claims, Turkey started saying that they too had suffered bird attacks originating from Israel, as well as sharks that had listening equipment strapped to their bodies, birds with tiny cameras attached to them, and specifically trained sharks that attacked seaside tourists in an attempt to crush the Turkish tourism industry. And more. Basically, any country that's had a beef with Israel has at one time or another claimed that they use animals for surveillance and more. In 2018, Hassan Firuzobadi, an Iranian military officer, said that Israel and the CIA were spying on their nuclear facilities using lizards. Quote, We found out that their skin attracts atomic waves and that they were nuclear spies who wanted to find out where inside the Islamic Republic of Iran we have our uranium mines and where we are engaged in atomic activities, he told the news services. He also claims tourists are to be watched carefully as well because they might also be spies, though probably not lizards. Even squirrels and insects have been sometimes identified as up to some funny business. However, it's important to note that the Palestinian-Lebanese journalist Jihad El-Kazan notes in his column Ayun Wa Azan that animal-related conspiracy theories such as these are not unique to the Muslim world and that for hundreds, even thousands of years, people have come up with explanations for things that reinforce their prejudices. Quote, even as such explanations often give truth, logic, and reason a slap in the face. It's difficult to draw direct parallels between Turkey's history and current events in the United States as the political, cultural, and social contexts are very different. However, there may be some cautionary lessons to be learned from Turkey's experience with polarization and political fragmentation. One lesson is the danger of demonizing political opponents and promoting a strictly us-versus-them mentality, which can lead to social fragmentation, violence, and a breakdown of democratic norms. Another lesson is the importance of maintaining a strong and independent judiciary, free press, and civil society as these institutions can act as checks against abuses of power and the erosion of democratic values. It is worth noting, however, that each country's situation is unique and solutions that work in one context may not necessarily work in another. Turkey, or Turkia, has some unique conspiracy features, but really, when it all gets boiled down and the details are stripped away, most conspiracy theories kind of cover the same ground, just in different ways. The clothes may change depending on the specific circumstances, but the dummy underneath is still the same old, same old. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy clearing house we're closing now but we'll open another crate in the next episode until then thank you for listening